Welcome to On the Middle East, Al Monitor's podcast on the big stories shaping the region. My name is Amran Zaman, and today I'll be talking about Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's decision on Monday to greenlight Sweden's NATO membership at an alliance summit in Vilnius. President Joe Biden, who met with the Turkish leader for more than an hour, hailed him for his courage in taking the decision, only to see Erdogan say that the Turkish parliament would probably not be able to ratify Sweden's accession before October. Even so, there's been much breathless punditry in the Western and Turkish government-controlled media about a reset between Turkey and the West, and a parallel cooling in Ankara's relations with the Kremlin. With us here today to discuss these developments is Nicholas Danforth, a leading expert on Turkey, who is a non-resident fellow at the Athens-based think tank Eliamap, and who is also an editor at War on the Rocks. So welcome to our show, Nick. It's great to have you back. And I'm sure you're full of energy now that you were in Sicily and apparently had a great time. Great to be back. Uh, great to be back on the show. Not necessarily great to be back from Sicily, but one way or the other. Here <laughs> no, I guess not. Uh, Washington summers can be quite rough with the humidity. But I want to kick off with your Amazing tweet that got 610 likes, 140 retweets, where you air quite a bit of cynicism about, you know, this so-called reset between Turkey and the United States. You say, Ankara has mastered the art of creating problems and leveraging them to partially reverse the damage done by the previous problems it created. So explain that to us. What did you mean, Nick? And what do you think is really going on? Look, if you go back two years, the assumption would have been, or if you go back two years or at any point during the long history of U.S.-Turkish alliance within NATO, the assumption would have been that something like Sweden's NATO membership would have been approved without any questions, without any problems. And something like military sales to Turkey, with the exception of the whole period around Cyprus, also would have been approved by the U.S. Congress with no problem. Uh, We've now gotten to a point where what would have been an alliance business as usual has become grounds for for leverage, for negotiation, for mutual frustration, uh, and posturing on both sides. And the fact that we've gotten through, and we haven't even yet, but the fact that we seem to have gotten through this particular episode Uh, that after over a year of uh, back and forth, we've now returned to the baseline uh, of both sides doing what they ordinarily would have done anyways. Uh, You know, it's progress. It's better than the alternative. You know, I don't want to take anything away from the diplomats who made this possible. I think it's a given the stakes and what the challenges, it was a real achievement, but we shouldn't confuse it with uh, some kind of reset, some kind of you know, return to the good old days. I think if anything, what this shows is at the point where uh, ordinary alliance business has become subject for negotiation, where both sides now come away thinking that they had to use their leverage to get the other side to do what they think the other side should have done anyways. 
that's going to incentivize both the United States and Turkey, and I think it would be foolish if both the United States and Turkey didn't take this lesson, uh, to start looking for new forms of leverage, to start blocking more forms of routine cooperation so that they can use, you know, blocking them in anticipation of then using them as leverage when the other side blocks some form of cooperation. So I don't, you know, but we can talk about why it's a dynamic, wouldn't you say? I mean, exactly. It's a toxic dynamic. And just because we've gotten through this particular hurdle uh, doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that we've changed the dynamic. It just, it, if anything, makes the uh, makes the toxicity even stronger. Right. Um, a delicate negotiation. The timing is still enormously complicated and it's going to yeah. take some patience and goodwill on both sides to work out, which is in short supply. So leverage, I mean, obviously the United States at the end of the day will always have more of that being the most powerful country on this planet. But for example, you know, what was very puzzling to me was the fact that we never heard any mention of this poor guy um, who's still in jail, the uh, Turkish national who worked for the DEA at the consulate, at the U.S. consulate in Istanbul. Um, why, why, why have we forgotten about him? Shouldn't that be like a priority? Shouldn't that come up? I mean, you know, I, we've, we've talked about this on previous podcasts. I think we're both on the same page about this. Unfortunately, when it comes to NATO business and the United States prioritizing security concerns over, you know, human rights, be they of foreign service nationals who worked for the United States, be they of people like Osman Kavala or Salahattin Demirtas, who are in jail in Turkey on trumped up charges. I mean, I don't, you know, I would love to see the United States take a different approach to its relationship with Turkey. The moments when it does decide to prioritize human rights, yeah, uh, I'm certainly yeah, I mean, thrilled that about. Was a bit but... of a sidebar, uh, unfortunately, we call human rights a sidebar. But to get back to um, you know the broader issue of U.S.-Turkish relations, I mean, what do you think is driving Erdogan's sort of charm offensive, if that's what we can call it? You know, he keeps talking about his new cabinet, the fact that he doesn't have this interior minister. I guess that's who he means. Süleyman Soylu, who was, you know, just spouting all kinds of nonsense every day about how awful America is. I mean, beyond that, um, what, first of all, why does he feel the need to pretend, if because it's more pretense at this point, to, to, to be changing? Uh, what's driving that? I think I think it has to do with the economy, and I think it's because up to a point, pretense works. I think what Erdogan's seen, has demonstrated, is that, and I think firmly believes, is that good news about uh, U.S.-Turkish relations, uh, some kind of positive narrative about Turkey turning back to the West, uh, Erdogan demonstrating pragmatism, returning to the good old days, you know, I think... He believes, and to a lesser extent than he believes that it's true, that positive news on that front creates a narrative which is ultimately good for the Turkish economy. It reassures investors, it helps strengthen the currency a little bit. Uh, and I think he's realized, you know, it ultimately doesn't take very much to create this narrative. There are a lot of people very eager for it. There are a lot of people waiting to pounce on any positive news to suddenly declare that we've had a reset suddenly declare that Erdogan's, you know, the good old Erdogan is back. He's moderated in victory. This is, uh, 
you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't change anything in the long run, but it does create that kind of positive momentum in the short run. And that does help markets up to a point. You know, I think it was interesting that he put uh, EU membership back on the table at the last minute in these negotiations. Yeah. I think even the most wildly optimistic people in Ankara know that Turkey's not about to join the EU any day. But I also think they realize that just expressing that desire, just pushing, you know, just using their leverage to get some positive statements out of European capitals, you know, it helps, helps with the economy, helps with this narrative. Um you know, and when they're scrambling, when they're trying to deal with a lot of uh, a lot of different things, that's that's something. You know, the pretense works, I guess, as you say, because people are desperate to sort of seize on it. If you're an investor, you want to turn a buck. If you're the United States, you know, obviously you want to sort of put a Band-Aid on things. But Ultimately, for as long as Erdogan is in power, do you believe that Turkey could ever go back on the path of reform, of being a like a, less of a pain in the neck? It could be slightly less of a pain in the neck. I mean, that's what we're seeing now. I mean, the level of pain in the neck can decrease. And I think Washington has probably gotten to the point where it's willing to take that as a win, I think in the administration there's probably you know each round of this each round of new optimism people still play along but i think the expectations of a real change diminish each time you know it's, there's been a whole misunderstanding you know everyone always emphasizes how pragmatic erdogan is and they say that as if that means that he could go back to 2005 erdogan yeah but i think that misses you know he is pragmatic in the sense that he can compromise he can take a step back he can, you know, do what it takes to stay in power, to live, to fight another day. But I don't think that means that the objectives change. I mean, the pragmatism is all in the service of A, staying in power of and course. B, advancing some kind of very real political ideological agenda. You know, his, his sense of what it takes to stay in power hasn't changed. That's why pragmatism doesn't include releasing his political enemies from jail. That's <laughs> that's too close to home. That's that from his point of view isn't pragmatic because it doesn't help him stay in power. Um, his threat perception hasn't changed. We've seen no evidence of that. He still thinks that the West is out to get him. Um, you know, and so if at any given moment he thinks, you know, you know, and he has a lot of problems that he's facing, he's you know, Turkish foreign policy has been very clear in saying it's not that they ever want to pivot to Russia. They're trying to balance between the United States and Russia. That balancing act every once in a while requires, you know, doing a few things to keep the foot in NATO on firm ground. Uh, but again, it's not, it's, yeah, it just the, the pragmatism is there. It's not that he's, you know, what makes him effective is that he's pragmatic, but you also have to understand what the goals of that pragmatism are. It's ironic that Turkey's explanation of why it was pursuing a more balanced uh, independent foreign policy always hinged on Western weakness and Russian strength. The fact that the world was becoming <laughs> more multipolar, the U.S. was becoming weaker, Russia was becoming stronger. And yet in the end, what I think has worked so well for Erdogan is that, you know, Russia made a mess of things. The invasion went terribly for Russia, that Prigozhin mutiny has just made things worse, um, you know, and so actually exactly that gives, you know, a situation in which Russia is at war with the West, but not doing terribly well, 
uh, but still posing a real threat, still you know creating this perceived need in the West for something like Swedish membership in NATO. You know, yeah, that maximizes Erdogan's maneuverability. But going back to your initial point about leverage and how we have this sort of toxic dynamic of the sides looking for leverage than using it to advance the relationship. It's kind of, yeah, toxic. What what would you say the, the leverage for the U.S. is currently and what Turkey's re- leverage is in the relationship with the U.S.? I mean, the people have been talking about the economy this whole time. It's certainly, it's a huge concern for Erdogan. It's something where, you know, at the end of the day in very concrete and in more subtle ways, Turkey's relations with the West do have an enormous impact on the health of the Turkish economy. You know, and I think that that did factor into the decision Erdogan made at Vilnius. I think it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, the good news is that Turkey's economic ties with the West, as people have long pointed out, do provide some kind of guardrails on the relationship. They're economic and institutional guardrails that keep, um, that do somewhat constrain Erdogan. But it's also, you know, you never know how reliable guardrails are. And you see some of those, you know, the ones on mountain roads where you think if you hit those too hard, if you crashed into them, you'd be plummeting into an abyss. And I think that's still you know, the case, Erdogan clearly cares about the economy. He doesn't want to see it uh, in shambles. But we also saw in the last election, you know, it's not the only game in town. Erdogan's managed to maintain a lot of support using uh, national security narratives that have helped him compensate for the real problems with the economy. And that, yeah, at at the end of the day, if it was, you know, him having to compromise versa on something that he really thought was essential to his under, you know, his staying in power versus, uh, you know, letting the economy collapse and trying to find some other way of dealing with that, you know, the expectation that he'd necessarily always back down, always prioritize the relationship with the West for economic reasons. You know, again, it, it's a guardrail. I just don't know how secure of one it is. Then there's the other issue, of course, the other big problem between Turkey and the United States, uh, U.S. support for the SDF, for the Syrian Kurdish um, experiment with self-rule, which would not be sustainable without U.S. support, without the presence of U.S. troops in uh, northeast Syria. Um, And they're basically in league, as Turkey sees it, with the PKK. So... Uh, where do you see that going and is that leverage and has the United States ever exercised it, you think? Well, the, the United States, is, it seems like it's intent on maintaining the status quo in Syria um, without without necessarily having thought a huge amount about what that will entail, about the challenges that will pose. And I think to the, you know, the United States has from one perspective, done a good job. I mean, it's decided that this is a priority. It's decided that, you know, it doesn't want Turkey to interfere with that. At various points, it's been more effective in that goal uh, than other times. Trump obviously made a mess of it. But for the most part, you know, it's not that the United States is kowtowed to Turkey. And the United States has, in many cases, said, this is what we're doing. Stay out of our way. Um, And, you know, and now... It's never clear what the borders of that, what the limits of that are, how far the, 
United States is going to push back. I mean, certainly the drone strikes that Turkey has been carrying out in spite of the U.S. presence have called that into question. As long as the U.S. stays there, Turkey is going to continue trying to push back in a number of different ways. And it's not... But it just, it doesn't seem like anything that the United States has thought of as using as leverage. I mean, it's like the United States is set on maintaining the course and then up to a point to the extent it wants to using other forms of leverage to get Turkey to stop interfering with that. No, I agree with that assessment, but equally, I am not so sure that beyond the end of the term of this presidency, you'll see those troops there still. That was always one of the criticisms of the U.S. lack of policy, that it was kind of maintaining the status quo without thinking about what came next, and that as the level of domestic support for that status quo decreased and the level of foreign opposition increased, you know, the risk would be at some point, as you say, that, you know, a new administration comes in, the U.S. pulls out, you know, without having a plan for what comes next, and it's worse than actually if there was some kind of more coherent long-term planning in the short run. Just one last question about the opposition. They they almost make you grateful that Erdogan won the way they're carrying on. And it doesn't look like they'll be able to hold on to the municipalities of Istanbul, Ankara. They may even lose Izmir, people are saying now. The fact that the opposition's in disarray after the election is, is discouraging. It's embarrassing. It's infuriating. But I also don't think it I don't think it means that the opposition has disappeared in Turkey. I don't think it means that this is the kind of perpetual state, the idea. You know, I don't know. I think I did say when we talked about this before the election that, you know, whatever happened, uh, I, Erdogan's not going to be able to turn Turkey into Russia. He's not going to be able to have a pliant, docile opposition. And I, you know, seeing what happened after the election, I thought maybe that was even that level of optimism was excessive. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but I still think it's true. I, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the disarray, the frustration, you know, at some point that opposition block exists, though people are, you know, serious and courageous. And it's once, once this is sorted out, you know, I don't, it doesn't mean that Erdogan can't hang on. It doesn't mean that Erdogan couldn't weather a, devastating economic crisis through authoritarian means but i don't it's not going to be easy for him it's not going to be stable for him thank you nick that was a great conversation thank you so much keep tweeting thank you for having me on (laughs) bye and this brings us to the end of on the middle east i hope you enjoyed my conversation with nick do follow him on twitter because his tweets are really sharp he's on at nicholas danfort all lowercase, all one word, and do read his book, The Remaking of Republican Turkey, Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the Ottoman Empire. I'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for tuning in.